And I was, at the time, I was, as I was studying, I was listening to an album by Joe Jackson, this new wave British musician, kind of along with Elvis Costello and that sort of genre. And um, really, I, I knew, having listened to Joe Jackson for years, um, I, I knew that it was more, most of his music that grabbed me. And, and not so much his, his stories or, or his worldview, as it were. But the music was just a wonderful background as I was studying. So I'm translating this Greek passage, and I'm listening to Joe Jackson in the background, and he's singing, and the lyric as he's singing was, in all the universe, we are just a speck of dust. And in that same exact moment, the words are coming clear on the page of the Greek that I was translating that we are declared to be the sons and daughters of God. And in that exact moment, my brain exploded. In all the universe, we are a speck of dust. We are the sons and daughters of God. Two competing worldviews. Now, in a way, actually, isn't it true that the Christian worldview embraces both? We actually are a mere speck of dust. And so to that, if that's all Joe Jackson was saying there wouldn't be a problem except for the fact that that was all he was saying. We are the sons and daughters of God. This passage we just had read, first we had these selections from thousands of years ago, the story of Abraham, this covenant that God is going to make to redeem this world. Has, is, go outside and look at the stars in the sky. I will make your descendants like the stars in the sky. And that covenant has indeed been coming true and has reached us here in Connecticut. And then we read the passage in Ephesians where Paul is making plain not the speck of, speck of dust aspect of, of reality. We know that enough. But he is making plain our eternal significance as the church of Jesus Christ. If you were here a little bit early today, um, you would have seen up on the screen a, um, a quote for meditation. Let me, let me read that for us now. And it sort of outlines where we're, where we're going with our as we, as we look at Ephesians 3. But this quote is from T.F. Torrance. And he essentially captures Ephesians chapter 2 with the first sentence of what he's about to say, that, that the Spirit is going to create the church. And then the rest of it is Ephesians chapter 3, which is what we're going to be preaching on right now, and then leading to Ephesians 4, actually. But anyway, this is what he says. The Spirit operates by creating out of the Word a body, which St. Paul calls the body of Christ. As such, this body becomes matched to Christ as his, vis-a-vis, -vis, in history, and as the instrument of his saving purpose in the gospel. This body, the church, is the sphere through, where, through the presence of the Spirit, the salvation events of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ are operative here and now in space and time, here and now in history. The church is the sphere where within the old creation, the new creation has broken in with power. Well, T.F. Torrance didn't just make that up. That comes from Ephesians 3. That comes from the passage we just had read for us. Let me, let me um, give you one statistic we, if, you, if some of you were able to be here for the Sunday studies today as we're focusing on world missions, um, we just 
we just began with this calling to the church that Jesus, back in 30 AD or whenever it was, after his ascension, speaks to the 12 men of Galilee, his 12 apostles, or uh, I guess it was 11 by that point because Judas had already wandered away. But he's speaking to these men of Galilee, and he says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then as Acts chapter 1 goes on, those men have a, have a company of the, the faithful women that were believing in Christ, and they meet in the upper room together. And so we're talking about mere dozens of people. So what had happened to Ab- the promise given to Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars in the sky? But now in Acts 1, we just see the faithful that believed in this Messiah, believed in the fulfillment of the covenant, was reduced apparently to just mere dozens. But then, of course, things begin to just explode because of G.F. Torrance, his quote tries to capture it. The Holy Spirit is at work, and he is going to bring the resurrection of Christ alive into this world through his church day in and day out throughout the ages. And so the statistic that we saw in the Sunday school time was in the year 1910, there were 600 million Christians. From this company of the dozens to 1900 years later, 600 million. But now a century later, there are something like 2.3 billion Christians beginning with these dozens, which about a third of the earth, the Spirit is building His church in power. So, this question I'm about to ask, we could answer it with a thousand PhD you know, projects, um, but I'll try to answer it with one simple phrase. But the question is, is this, how? How did this gospel grow and multiply? We've seen T.F. Torrance's summary of it, the Holy Spirit creating the church. But, but how? How does the church grow from dozens to billions? And how, then, is it going to continue to grow? Well, again, we could spend years and years answering that question, but here's a simple way of answering it. It was wonderful to begin the worship service with um, Psalm 40, which you too put to music, um, because I was actually going to use the, a new U2 song as the answer to the question. One of their newest songs is titled, Love is Bigger Than Anything in Its Way. That is how this gospel has grown and grown and grown. Love is bigger than anything in its way. That's what we see in the Ephesians 3 passage, the bigness of love. Let me pray for us as we move through the passage together. Lord, we praise you and thank you that your love is indeed constantly being poured out. It is constantly on the move. You are constantly personalizing your love and coming near to us, near to your people, and drawing more and more people into your body. Lord Jesus, use this time now to encourage us, to strengthen us in love in every way. We pray in Christ's great name. I think the bulletin, uh, you have the sermon title there from Ephesians 3. To the church, through the church, and in the church. So it's a rich passage. 
this whole chapter, but we're going to try to summarize it under those three headings. To the church, through the church, and in the church. The first part of the passage, we see it begins by Paul talking about something that's been given to him. He is the one, verse 2, to whom God gave a stewardship of his grace. God gives this grace, a stewardship of grace, not to everyone willy-nilly, but to Paul. And we would say, and Paul would agree, he makes plain elsewhere, to Paul and the other apostles. This stewardship is given to Paul, to the apostles. In fact, Paul specifically clarifies that in verse 5. That this stewardship, this grace of God, this revelation of God that has, was not revealed to others is now revealed, verse 5, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So, in this first prepositional phrase, to the church, we're seeing here that the word of God shows us the uniqueness of the church. To which country on the planet right now in this time of the Olympics, it's, it's, you sort of, you, you have in the, front, in the front of my mind all these different countries. If you watch the parade of countries coming in and so we're aware that this world has all num- hundreds of nations. To which of those nations does God give the sun rising every day? All of them. To which of those nations does he give oxygen to breathe every day? All of them. And we could go on. All these things that God gives that we call general revelation and common grace. But this passage is emphasizing to whom has the gospel given, been given, the stewardship to preach it and proclaim it. And it says, verse 5, to the holy apostles and to the prophets. This is why we call this special revelation. There's a uniqueness to the stewardship being given to us, to the church. If we are in the company of the apostles and prophets, if we are an apostolic church, and you might remember that's what... That's one of the four or five basics of what, if you're a true church, you have to be holy, Catholic, apostolic. You have to be in line with the historic church. And so if you are an apostolic church in line with the prophets and the apostles, then we now are the recipients of this unique gospel. Every nation has been given the sun. Every nation has been given the, the rain, the oxygen. There's all sorts of grace, but only to the church to the church and the church alone, those in, in, in the apostolic line, in keeping with the apostles and prophets, the uniqueness of this gift. And it's a stewardship of grace, and we could talk all day long about this grace. Preston mentioned earlier just this idea that is counter to grace, the idea of karma. Or... Uh, in some theological categories, we might even call that the category of, of works, of law. What you put in is what you get out. And we actually hope that that's the way most systems on earth work. I, I hope that those that keep the law will, will be rewarded and those that break the law will be punished. I hope that when you take a test, those that have mastered the material get better grades than those that just took lucky guesses. We want the system of karma, as it were, of, of works, to be the system that keeps the world running. 
And so that's, that's natural to the human heart. The human heart understands uh, the, the basics of cause and effect. But what's a mystery to us, what's called a mystery in this passage, what is alien to our human hearts is this idea of grace. And it's the church that's been given the richness of this, this mystery, that to the undeserving comes this reward, this promise. Well, grace is a mystery, but if you read this passage carefully, and I was really thankful for the way it was read, because it was read, it wasn't, thank you for the scripture reading today. It was, um, I, I haven't ever experienced this bad example in this church, praise the Lord, but on occasion you can hear scripture read in a, seems like a relatively faithless way. That the person reading it, you can't tell whether they believe a thing. That They're just going through the motions. Well, anyway, this was read very faithfully today. And in particular, there was a, he brought emphasis when he came to this. And so here is the mystery. So if you read the passage carefully, it's not just grace that's the mystery. But the mystery, as he pointed out, is in verse 6. The mystery is this. It's that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That's this mystery. This mystery is that when it was promised to Abraham that it's your offspring that are going to be a blessing to the whole world, the mystery is that God did not mean biological offspring. God meant those that were spiritual offspring, who shared the same faith that Abraham had. And that was a mystery, and it wasn't apparent. It wasn't apparent, and even the early Christians were confused And it took a special revelation to Peter to make super plain, no, the Gentiles are clean now. This was never meant to be for one tribe, one ethnicity. This mystery is that even the Gentiles who who have spent thousands of years persecuting you and trying to wipe you Jewish people from the face of the earth are now included. And you who have hated them and they who have hated you, There's an ethnic difference, there's a religious difference, there's all sorts of differences, but the mystery is that now even the Gentiles are made fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Members of the same body, members of the same body. When you think of that word member or membership, and I checked it out this week, I looked it up in the dictionary, its definition as a part of an organization, a member is a member of an organization, is actually definition number two. Its primary meaning was its original meaning. A member is a reference to a part of the body or a limb. It's by definition a physiological, like a reference to a member of a body. It's, so just for a moment, don't, uh, don't hesitate to do this. I'm going to make us all be ridiculous together. But hold up your right hand in front of you. Do it. Hold up your left hand in front of you. And now have your right hand and your left hand fight each other. Do it right now. Make them fight each other. Like, okay. That's just this ridiculous thing. It's ridiculous for members of the same body to be opposing each other. Every now and then there might be some sort of weird, psychotic effect of a person where they think that their part of their own body is the enemy. And they amputate a piece of their, or one of their limbs, or they castrate themselves or something. They, one part of my body is an enemy of the other part of my body, and we know that's psychosis, not health. And Paul is saying, it's psychosis, not health, to not embrace each other as Jews, as Gentiles. 
the other who seems so different from you. Don't war against them. Don't be ridiculous like that. You're members of the same body. Your body works together. Your left arm, your right arm. So there's this great mystery, this uniqueness of the church, is that to the church and the church alone has been given this great mystery, this reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles, of all people of all sorts in Christ and Christ alone. But then the second aspect of this passage, the second prepositional phrase, to the church, through the church, through the church. And here's where we see in verse 10 where Paul says, God who created all things, now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God is making his glory known. He is making his manifold wisdom known, his multiplied wisdom, his variegated wisdom. He's making it known through the church. Through the church. I'm all, I always love watching like channel surfing and coming to the, the nature channel. And I always love like pictures of new types of animals or fish or sea creatures that are just now being discovered because they're deep, deep underwater. These odd, bizarre looking creatures, all these 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 glorious, beautiful things happening and have been happening for years and years, epochs of time, without any human noticing it. If a tree falls in the forest, God is glorifying himself constantly, whether people are around to notice or, or, or profit from the way he's, he's just pouring out his glory. But the knowledge of reconciliation with him through his son, the promised Messiah on the cross, can only be found through the church. The church, it's through the church that this manifold wisdom is made known. And so the first prepositional phrase, to the church, we're learning about our uniqueness. We're distinct from every other institution on earth. The second prepositional phrase, through the church, we're learning about our calling. What is our calling? Our calling is to be the manifold, the, the vessel through which he, he makes his manifold wisdom known. What is he making known? He, Paul uses these three parallel phrases in verses 9 and 10, or verses 8, 9, and 10. He's making known through us his unsearchable riches, Secondly, the mystery hidden for ages. Thirdly, the manifold wisdom. Now, how does he make it known through us? Sometimes we've used a, a phrase around here, and, and we, we want to keep using this phrase because I think it's a great way of answering the question. That he makes his wisdom known through the church, by the church, simply being the church. Simply being the church, he's making his manifold wisdom known. By what, do we mean, what do we mean by being the church? It means a community of people in right relationship vertically with God and horizontally with each other. And this 
the profoundness of our community there, it's, it's through us just simply being the church that his manifold wisdom is now passed on through us. And what's, what I find fascinating to this, uh, about this passage, I think if you've been a Christian for some time, you, you're somewhat aware, and if you're not yet a Christian or soon to become a Christian, you'll, you'll find this out, but that you, you'll, you feel a sense of responsibility to be what's called a witness, a witness for God's grace to you and to, to testify to that, to talk with others about that. Part of the good news, though, is that the method by which God does that isn't dependent on any one of our personality strengths or weaknesses. If the method for how to be a witness required being really well-spoken, being outgoing, being self-confident, taking initiative, then you know, one-tenth of us would be able to live out this strategy of God, how to be a witness by well-spoken, confident people taking initiative to tell the story about Jesus. But the good news is that the strategy, how to be a witness, is that we are the witness. The church, being the church, is the witness. And so, practically speaking, I mean, not to minimize our calling or responsibility. Certainly, if somebody wants to talk with you about your faith, talk as much as you feel confident, but not to minimize it and reduce it to this, but, at, but one fantastic and simple strategy that we can all do is just simply invite people into the life of the church. Let the church corporately be the witness as was God's design, and don't take all that messianic complex upon yourself. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of the church, because in the church we experience this Jew and Gentile reconciliation. These the relationships with those that we otherwise wouldn't have a relationship with. And the world notices this. And so another aspect of this passage that then that, that along those same lines gives us gives us great confidence, certainly gives me great confidence, is Look to whom in particular we are to be manifold witnesses, or, or, or the manifold wisdom of God through the church, witnesses to whom in particular, you, if you have the passage in front of you. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now made known to the watching world. But that doesn't say that. To our neighbors. It doesn't say that. Now that's implied. But it, who's it? It's to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places which in the broader context of Ephesians, Paul makes this super clear three chapters later in Ephesians 6. That same phrase he uses three chapters later to refer to demonic forces, the spiritual forces of wickedness and evil. Beelzebub is that word that means the, the, the uh, uh, lord of the flies, the prince of the air, these spiritual forces of wickedness and evil. That's who we are manifold witnesses to. And so it's, it's, we could talk about this and all its implications, but here's one implication, is that the response of those we are witnessing to is not our responsibility. Because even the demons are the ones to whom we're to be witnessing to, and they are by definition irredeemable. They won't respond. And so 
We are just set free to just be ourselves and let the results be in God's hands. But then a second implication is that great, like, logical method of arguing from the greater to the lesser. If we're called by God to be witnesses even to these irredeemable, utterly unreasonable, and thoroughly wicked forces, then you know what? We really can be witnesses to mere humans, (laughs) no matter how twisted they may seem. We know our own hearts, and so if we just, there's no need to be intimidated that God has placed us as a church here in New Haven, here in Connecticut, here in America, here in the Western world, here in the 21st century. No church ever needs to feel intimidated because the manifold wisdom of God is being made known through the church, even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so we're set free arguing from the greater to the lesser, to not be intimidated as we witness to the glories of Christ in whatever context he's placed us. And then finally now, the third prepositional phrase, to the church, the uniqueness of the church, through the church, our present calling, and now in the church. There's something happening in the church that's profound and glorious. And what we see here is that near the end of the passage, Paul says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Here he is very self-consciously, here and in many other places in the New Testament, grabbing a hold of that language that, that God first gave to Abraham thousands of years earlier that this covenant he was going to be making was going to be for all generations. And they were given these little mini covenants in the Old Testament, like to Phineas and his offspring, and those weren't ever intended to be for all generations. This Abrahamic covenant was, and so if Paul had come along and said, you know, this Jesus who you just crucified, he was simply fulfilling one of those mini covenants, then people probably wouldn't have given Paul that much of a hard time. But what he did was he said, he is here claiming the biggest covenant of all, the one to all generations, all people, all places, all times, even the Gentiles. This is the covenant. I'm claiming the Abrahamic covenant. Christ is the fulfillment of that. And so this glory is in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Notice the pairing there of that the glory is found, God's glory is found uniquely in the church and in Christ Jesus. It's not one nor the other, nor the other, nor the one. It's both together. You've probably heard us talk at different points about Augustine's great phrase, total Christ. And as he talks about that, he encourages us to sort of envision these two horrific, you know, potentials where he says, we don't want to envision a head without a body or a body without a head. We don't want to envision a decapitated body or a decorpsulated head, but rather head and body together. The glory of God is found in Christ and in his church, in the head and in the body together. There's this pairing, this unity, and I just simply want to point that out to us. But now we see the substance of what he's talking about. What do we find in in the church? We find this glory. What are you talking about by glory? Glory is one of those words that just seems like a religious word. It just seems like a religious word without much meaning. 
But we might remember, of course, that we give that word, we use it in contexts where something is big or where something is profound or where something is beautiful. Its root is tied in with this idea of, of like physical weight so that a lump of coal in that sense is more glorious than a feather. It's more full of weight and significance. And so glory, significance is what's found in, in Christ and in his church. Significance, things of weight, things of beauty, things of value, things of infinite importance are found here in the church. And in particular, what's found, what has Paul just gotten done praying for for us? And he's just given this, this great meditation on. In particular, what we're talking about now is love. Love is what is found where Christ is found. Love is what is found in the church where Christ is present. He's just gotten done praying for us that we would have strength to be able to grasp on to how big the love of God is for us. Sometimes, just all of us have been students at one point or another, and looking around, it seems like most of us might be students right now. And sometimes we get to this point um, where the sheer amount of material in front of us, we're just not sure that we have the brain space able to comprehend it all and bring it all in. Now, think of that feeling when you feel that way. It's just you're overwhelmed by the sheer amount of material. But now, turn that feeling on its head and think of that feeling of overwhelming in a great way. Where the material isn't so much like comprehension of knowledge, but it's all this love. All this love that God has for you. It's overwhelming. You can't get your arms around it. It's higher, it's deeper, it's wider, it's broader. We need strength to be able to even come close to understanding just how deep the love of God is for us. And so this is how we find the glory of the church present and how we continue on mission. How these 12 apostles multiplied, became hundreds of millions a century ago and now are billions of people because love is bigger than anything in its way. The love of Christ experienced in the church and when people are loving each other, multiplies. So, Here's how we wrap up with a, the final bit of application. Paul then gives us the application of all this in the very next chapter, but that's a sermon for another time. But I'm going to summarize it right now. The application is this. If two things are in place in your heart, number one, if you are aware of God's love for you, and you're receiving it. You're open to it. You're, you're, you're aware of the height, the breadth, the width, the depth. You're receiving his love for you. You're knowing it. You're relying on it. If that's present in your heart. And then the second thing from this passage, the second thing is present in your heart as well. That Secondly, so that's, that's vertical. Secondly, horizontal. Secondly, if you're aware that your brothers and sisters in the church are indeed your brothers and sisters. They are indeed your fellow heirs, your equals in Christ, fellow members. You're not going to fight against the left arm and the right arm. 
So you're aware of the love of God for you. You're aware of the value and significance of your brothers and sisters, that they are fellow heirs with you. If those two things are in place, you will be one of the ones through whom the church is now multiplying its witness. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. We create peace where there was no peace between Jew and Gentile. We create peace in the church of Jesus Christ by receiving the love of God for us, by being aware of the significance of the other. We now move forward. We bear with them in all love. That's, this is Ephesians 4. We bear with our brothers and sisters in all love, with all humility, with all gentleness, with all patience. And now, to wrap up, think of the alternatives. The alternative would be that sometimes our hearts get in that place where we seem to be aware of number one, I'm loved by God, but I don't consider this person a fellow heir with me. That just creates peace breaking. That's not peacemaking, that's peace breaking. That be you become hostile, you become arrogant, you become indifferent, dismissive. So that's the person, sometimes we're aware of the love of God, but not valuing those around us. But the second alternative would be just very aware that the person around me matters, but not aware of the God's love for me. And that tends to towards this other thing we call peace faking, where you just don't have much actual energy to love. And so you just sort of, you don't want to cause trouble, you want to value the person, but you, you're feeling empty inside. So aware of the love of God, but not the significance of other, peace breaking, aware of the significance of the other, but not the love of God, peace faking. But those two things in place. Lord, thank you for your love for me. Help me to grasp it. Thank you, Father. We all pray now thanking you for your love for us. Help us to grasp the height, the width, the, the, width, the breadth, the depth of your love for us. Thank you that we're fellow heirs. We're fellow members of the same body. We're partakers of the same mystery with our brothers and sisters in the church. Lord, stabilize those two things so deeply in our hearts that we really are peacemakers all of our lives. Multiply your witness here and around the world for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.